Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 69. We'll begin with a brief summation of the concluding chapters 28 through 31 in the book of Samuel and follow with a consideration of Shaul's final days as king and living person and why the Tanakh, though highly critical of it, doesn't aggressively debunk sorcery. Chapter 28 begins with some exposition. Shmuel is dead, and Shaul had, in proper monotheistic enforcer fashion, outlawed necromancy in his kingdom. Why are we being reminded of this now, on the eve of war between Israel and the Philistines? How is this relevant? Patience. Patience, my love. So the Philistines are encamped at Shunem. The Jews are encamped on the opposite side of the Israel Valley, and war is afoot. And Shaul is, for lack of a better word, totally lost. Gripped by fear, he entreats God through dreams, through the Urim, through prophets, but there is no answer. So he turns to his servants and asks them to, quote, seek me out a ghost wife that I may go to her and inquire through her. Shaul is soon on his way to Endor, the small forested moon located in the Outer Rim territories and the homeworld of the Ewok species where he finds a witch. Dressed in disguise as he, quote, cut off the ghosts and familiar spirits from the land, he solicits her aid in conjuring a ghost. The ghost of Shmuel. Which she does. And she wails as Shmuel rises from the earth, a figure of a man wrapped in a cloak, who addresses Shaul directly and irritably, quote, Why have you troubled me to summon me up? Shaul crumbles in the presence of his old master, blubbering in desperation about the Philistines and how God has turned away from him. What follows from Shmuel is a stinging rebuke of Shaul's monarchy and a chilling pronouncement that, quote, Tomorrow you and your sons are with me. Shaul crumples on the ground again and cannot move. Eventually, the witch gets some food into him. He eats and then departs to meet his fate. Cut to the Philistine camp at Afik, where the Philistine captains are mustering their troops, and suddenly notice that there are Hebrews in their ranks. Is that who I think it is? It's David and his men, and they've come out to fight with Achish. Achish has full confidence in David's loyalty, but the Philistine captains are not as sure about David, and they will not fight if David is with them. So Achish has no choice but to send David away. And David protests too, but in the end he concurs with his lord the king's wishes and returns to Philistine country in the south, while Achish and the Philistines remain in the north to fight. It's like David has to get away as far as possible from what's about to happen, and when he returns to Tsiklag, he discovers that in his absence, the Amalekites have raided his base of operations, burned it to the ground, and kidnapped all of the wives and children. So after David's men cry their eyes out and threaten to lynch David, David asks Eviatar the priest to bring out the ephod, to, quote, inquire of the Lord. And the ephod tells him, quote, This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. So David and his 600 men head out in hot pursuit and within seven verses dispatch the Amalekites with extreme prejudice. David shares out the booty equitably between his men and the elders of Yehuda, an investment which will surely pay off later when David will solicit the support of these same elders for his fledgling kingdom. Meanwhile, in chapter 31... Everything! Stay! 
on Mount Gilboa, the Israelites are scattered in defeat. Yonatan, son of Shaul and beloved of David, is dead. So are his brothers Avinadav and Malkishua. Shaul is mortally wounded and begs his armor bearer to finish him off. Quote, lest the uncircumcised come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor bearer can't bring himself to do it, so Shaul falls on his own sword, at which point the armor bearer falls on his own sword too. All is lost. The next day, the Philistines come to strip the dead and find the bodies of Shaul and his sons. They cut off Shaul's head and strip the body of armor. The armor, a trophy of victory, goes to the temple of Ashtarot, but the body goes to Bitshan, where it is impaled on the city wall. When the men of Yavesh Gilad hear of this, they set out in the night to retrieve Shaul's body. If you recall, Shaul's first act as king was the rescue of Yavesh Gilad from the hands of the Ammonites, a heroic act which they never forgot. And so they returned the king's remains and the remains of his sons to Yavesh Gilad, burned the bodies, and interred their bones under a tamarisk tree. Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. Eidolon, from the ancient Greek meaning image or fantasy, has a slightly different connotation today. When we speak of an Eidolon, we are referring to a spirit image of a living or dead person, a shade or phantom lookalike of the human form. But Eidolon is also the term used to describe the images of gods, and idolatry is the worship of those images. As I've discussed in many previous episodes of Tanakhcast, idolatry is a long-standing bugaboo of the authors of the Tanakh, especially in the Torah. The Tanakh's disdain for idolatrous practice is grounded in two premises. The first is that idolatry violates the covenant Israel struck with God. That's pretty straightforward. But the second is an objection on more practical grounds. Idolatry, the Tanakh maintains, is a useless waste of time. Why would anyone in their right mind beseech idols to intervene in matters of fertility, rain, health, and so on, when such matters fall solidly in God's wheelhouse? And these premises also extend, or should extend, to the other abhorrent practices of the nations mentioned in the Tanakh, such as various forms of sorcery. Deuteronomy 18 states, quote, Let no one be found among you who is an augur, a soothsayer, a diviner, a sorcerer, one who casts spells, one who consults ghosts or familiar spirits, or one who inquires of the dead. For anyone who does such things is abhorrent to the Lord. Leviticus 19 and 20 proscribe divination and soothsaying and the turning to ghosts and spirits. Exodus 22 commands, quote, The book of Numbers chapter 23 imagines a God-fearing Israel where there is no augury or sorcery. And then there are the actual confrontations with magic and magicians where we see in real time in IMAX 3D how truly ineffective magic is in the face of God's will and power. Yosef, summoned from prison to an audience with a sleep-troubled Pharaoh, tells him, quote, God will answer what is for Pharaoh's welfare. Moshe and Aharon defeat Egypt's finest sorcerers in Exodus 7, demonstrating that Harry Potter is dead! <laughs> <laughs> But hold on a moment. Let's walk through that specific demonstration of the futility and pointlessness of sorcery one more time. God tells Moshe and Aharon to perform the old staff into snake trick to drive home the point that they speak for God and God's command to let my people go. 
So Moshe and Aharon do what they have been instructed, and quote, Pharaoh too called for the wise men and for the sorcerers, that they too, the magicians of Egypt, should do thus with their occult arts. They threw down each man his staff, and these became serpents. But Aharon's staff swallowed up their staffs. So it's not that Pharaoh's magicians are charlatans. They don't engage in sleight-of-hand flim-flammery to hide their powerlessness. They can and do turn their staffs into snakes. It's just that God's snake is bigger and badder and hungrier. So although this incident demonstrates God's supremacy and by extension the validity of our covenant with the divine, what it does not do is prove that sorcery is a waste of time. In fact, it demonstrates that... Sorcery works. And here in the book of Shmuel, we have Shaul who asks for the very thing he sought to destroy with his own edict, a ghost wife, to summon for him someone from the other, the side. other side. But because he can't be seen actually consulting a ghost wife, he disguises himself and with only two guys in his security detail, heads out in the night to find one. Oh, and remember, he's encamped on the south side of the Israel Valley, and the Philistines are on the north end in Shunem, and Endor is north. So when he manages to sneak past all the Philistine patrols, he reaches the ghost wife and says to her, please commit a capital offense for me, and she's justifiably terrified about his request. So what does Shaul do? To make her feel better, to calm her, he swears to God that nothing bad will happen to her. He may well be swearing to Gort from the day the earth stood still. The woman's not Jewish. Swearing to God means nothing to her, but she agrees nonetheless. And here's the thing. Unlike the legion of psychics and mediums who claim to speak to the dead, she actually does. She actually summons Shmuel from the other, the side. other side. Once again, proving that... Sorcery works. But how is this possible? How did the Tanakh unintentionally substantiate the workings of witchcraft and sorcery twice? Considering that the Tanakh is the Tanakh, wouldn't it, like Harry Houdini or the amazing Randy or Penn and Teller, also try to debunk and discredit sorcery in all of its forms? Sure, if the Tanakh was all about monotheism. What? Yep, that's correct. The Tanakh is not exclusive about monotheism in the way we generally think. And it's odd that this issue of belief, belief in, one, in God one God never really came up before in Tanakh cast, especially since we regard Judaism as a monotheistic religion. And considering all that inveighing against idolatry and all the smashings of near offering sites and standing stones and idols and all that stuff. Let's be clear. The Tanakh never posits that God has a girlfriend or boyfriend or children or anything like that. The question is, is the, in the worldview of the Tanakh, is God a deity alone in the universe or just our God, to which we must be eternally loyal. These are two very different positions, hence two different words. Well, actually, three. The first term is monolatry, from the Greek for single worship. This belief system recognizes the existence of many gods, but believers only worship one. A corollary to monolatry is henotheism, from the Greek for one god where believers worship one God alone without denying that others may worship differently or with equal validity. One could say that it's a more pluralistic form of monolatry. And last, monotheism, from the Greek for single God, which asserts the existence of only one God and one God alone. 
There are many obvious shout-outs to monotheism in the Tanakh, most prominently the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Jews proclaim that, quote, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And that's the general tenor of much of the Tanakh, one God, ours, that's it. Except when you get to that moment in Exodus 20, commandment one or two, depending on how you count, where God says, quote, you are not to have any other gods before my presence. Why would God have to say that if God was the only deity in the universe? This acknowledging, not acknowledging, along with the references to Egyptian gods, especially the aforementioned snake trick scene with Pharaoh, and all the discussions about false prophets and litmus tests for false prophecies, as well as the episode's actual raising of spirits from the dead through ghost wifery, prompted some historians to argue that ancient Israel originally practiced a form of monolatry, or henotheism. But considering all the examples of Jews running after Baal, which the Tanakh and its spokespeople often lamented, it's probably safer to argue that the Tanakh describes a monotheistic religion in principle. A principle that Shaul, too, defended in principle. But for Shaul, when push came to shove, it was Shmuel, of all people, that shoved back. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 70, when we begin the second book of Samuel with chapters 1 through 3.